thank you all again so much for being here. I can't say that enough. So I am supposed to introduce the Secretary of State. Um, but I'm going to let you guys look at his bio. First of all, who doesn't know Lexi? <laughs> there is not a hand up in here who does not know him, right? So everything he touches seems to turn to gold. He did not pay me to say that. Really, he did not. Um, if you remember, he was like, how old were you, Secretary, when you became treasurer? Like 12? <laughs> yeah, 29, right? So, And so he's just blossomed from there. And I just have to say, I want to take a tagline from Dan. I'm sure there's more to come from him. So I am not going to stand up here and read a whole bio because, first of all, everyone can read because you all go to libraries, right? Um, I'm going to decrease, allow him to come up, and he's going to take the program from here. Um, Secretary of State, Alexi Janilius. Uh, thank you for those kind words. Thank you for your friendship. Um, thank you for all that you do um, for our city and for our state. You've always been a, an, an amazing friend. Um, I am here to introduce the panelists. Uh, but first, uh, I'd like to editorialize uh, a little bit about what's happening across the country. Uh, I want to begin by thanking City Club um, of Chicago for hosting this event. Thank you for everything uh, that you do as a public forum uh, to increase public engagement in the city of Chicago. Uh, I am uh, inspired and excited to be here with such an acclaimed group as we kick off Library Appreciation Week, which officially begins on Sunday. Uh, personally, given what's happening across the country, uh, I wish we could extend Library Appreciation Week for the rest of the entire year. I think it's important. Um, and uh, today's topic could not be timelier, defending democracy. As a state librarian, part of my job is to do just that, to support libraries and librarians, to ensure that Illinoisans have access to books and learning materials, and to provide them with the ability to serve the needs of their communities. Illinois libraries and librarians do an incredible, incredible job. Our libraries serve as the town square and the cornerstone of every single community in the state, whether you're in the west side of Chicago, whether you're in central Illinois, whether you're in deep southern Illinois, every single community needs and loves its library. The numbers here in Illinois speak for themselves. Illinois, Illinois libraries rank third in the nation in per capita library use. We should all be very proud of that. Librarians... Librarians are more than just diligent public servants. Librarians are superheroes, especially during a time when their jobs have become more complicated, more stressful, and sadly, more politicized. Tragically, our librarians now find themselves on the front lines of culture wars. In some cases, they're being labeled as pedophiles and are getting called out by elected officials and harassed on social media by members of their own communities. This is absolutely dangerous and absolutely unacceptable. The concept of banning books contradicts the very essence of what our country stands for. It also defies what education is all about, teaching our children to think for themselves. People should be allowed to choose for themselves what books they want to read. And of course, parents should be able to direct their own children 
to books they deem appropriate. But they should not, they should not be allowed to deny what books the parents of other children may access. The United States, yes, please. I am the son of two immigrants, and the United States has always served as a beacon of freedom to the entire world. That freedom includes the right to learn and to share ideas freely. And while the scourge of censorship is unfortunately polarizing and disrupting communities throughout our country, it has also threatened the safety of our amazingly dedicated librarians like nothing we've seen before. The American Library Association summed it up well. They said the last two years have been exhausting, frightening, and outrage-inducing. And let me talk about what's happening uh, with our neighbors um, just next door. In neighboring Missouri, lawmakers passed legislation that allows them to arrest, jail, and fine school librarians who provide students with certain books. And they voted to cut all funding for libraries in its version of the state's annual budget for the upcoming fiscal year. In Iowa, the governor's education bill contains measures to remove all books from libraries. In Indiana, the Senate passed a measure that would allow parents to have broader powers over content and charge librarians with felonies based on materials checked out of school libraries. These are our neighbors. So while we feel good in Illinois, we cannot forget what's happening right next door across the country. Now for some good news. In Illinois, we are doing something very different. By drafting legislation to ensure that book banning has no place here and to help remove the pressure that librarians have had to endure from extremist groups like the Proud Boys who have targeted some of our libraries. It's simple. Under House Bill 2789, if books are banned, Illinois libraries will not be eligible for library grants from this office. This, this important legislation has passed the Illinois House of Representatives, and I'm proud uh, to say that just yesterday I was voted out of committee in the state Senate, so we're looking forward to it passing out of the Senate and being adopted here in Illinois. L let me be clear. These efforts to ban reading materials have nothing to do with books. They are about restricting the freedom of, of ideas that certain individuals disagree with and believe that no one else should have access to. As your Secretary of State and State Librarian, I promise to defend this right and to do whatever I can to support our amazing librarians who deserve our appreciation and our admiration. Can we have one, another round of applause for our amazing librarians? So uh, today's event is moderated by award-winning humanitarian Sylvia Ewing, Principal Director of Tr Strategic Partnerships and Communications for Elevate. Um, thank you, Sylvia. And I'm also uh, very excited to introduce today's panelists. Tracy Hall is the Executive Director of the American Library Association, uh, which has headquarters proudly right here in Chicago. The Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom champions the rights of library users to read and have unrestricted access to information as basic rights in our democratic society. The office also hears from libraries throughout the country when challenges occur to the materials shelved in their collections. And 
Um, as was mentioned, Tracy was just named as one of the 100 most influential people of the year. That is pretty cool. As I, as I told Tracy, I have one of those fake Time Magazine. This is the <laughs> dad of the year that my wife gave me for Father's Day. So, so we're basically the same achievement. Um, John Bracken is the executive director of the Digital Public Library of America. He has had a long career devoted to improving accessibility to information and the pursuit of intellectual freedom. In addition to his role as the Digital uh, Public Library of America, he serves on the board of the Illinois Humanities Council. Thank you, John, uh, for your leadership. And lastly, Chris Brown serves as the commissioner of the Chicago Public Library. Side note, I was on the board of Chicago Public Library. The CPL does amazing work. This foundation does incredibly important work. Uh, Chris is a great leader and a great friend. So, um, Chris, thank you for your leadership. He has worked uh, to establish a library as a book sanctuary to ensure endangered books remain safe within all neighborhoods and branches within the city. I want to applaud Commissioner Brown and the CPL Library for this undertaking. I also, again, want to point out the work that uh, Mr. Wislow and the foundation do on behalf of our city. So with that, I want to uh, allow the, the panelists and our moderator to come up. Let's give them a loud round of applause. So exciting. <laughs> all right, everybody. You can hear us. You're good. We're going to also be able to take questions. This is a, a family affair. You probably have done this at this club many times, but if you haven't, there will be an opportunity for that in a little bit. I like to take care of business and keep it rolling. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to speak a little bit uh, together, and then there'll be an opportunity for your written questions as well. I am going to take a moderator's prerogative to shout out Gabe uh, Lyons from Illinois Humanity, Woo! Uh, Woo! First Lady Amy Esselman, who is just a library queen and my friend, uh, Mary Ellen Karen and Mary Ellen Messner, Michelle Boone. I think that's enough, Sylvia. <laughs> so, Wilkie, and you know, you're in my heart if I didn't say your name. I'd like to start piggybacking on what um, we heard from our state librarian, among other um, attributes. Talk a bit about the context that we find ourselves in in this moment. We know that there's divides in the country, but I don't think people are aware of, of just how serious. Uh, this, this attack on democracy is. And I'll start with you. Well, thank you, Sylvia, for joining us and moderating this group. And another panelist prerogative, I just want to give a shout-out to Edelman, who, as Alexi mentioned, our book sanctuary, they've been our partners in establishing that. So thank you, Edelman team. I, I think we're really fortunate in Chicago to have such a diverse city and this isn't an issue that we're facing directly here, but I think when your deepest values and mission is being challenged throughout the country, how do you remain silent on that? Like, we have to say something about this. I think what's at stake for us is this getting normalized. So when you see states like Florida, where they're introducing legislation that would lead to de facto book bans in schools, where even a book 
getting challenged would lead to it being pulled off the shelves. Uh, we need to be able to speak out and make sure that this doesn't get normalized throughout our country. Well, thank you so much for that. And Tracy, what do you say uh, is our current trend and what's happening now and how widespread is it? Well, we know that the escalation in censorship today far outpaces even that of the McCarthy era, right? So we're talking about an era in which 30,000 books were banned and which authors were put on trial. So it feels really good to be in this room with so many of you who are dedicated uh, to freedom of speech, freedom of inquiry, and the right to read. And it, we couldn't be, um, I think, at a better place uh, having a secretary of state who is championing the right to read and really setting an example with the state of Illinois and with the city of Chicago is really important. Our positionality in the Midwest is important. Mm-hmm. I want to say this, though. Um, I have my colleagues at the American Library Association just wave your hand. <laughs> and we work with... We work with 50,000 members in over 5,000 institutions across the country, and every single morning we read about bomb threats and fires and recently, unfortunately, a shooting um, in a library as a result of people who are escalating uh, this censorship tide. And we have to, so I just want to say this. This is, this is what I want us to do right now. If you believe these words, I want you to say it back to me. Free people read freely. Free people read freely. If you know that you believe it, I want you to say it louder. Free people read freely. Free people read freely. And if you want the rest of the world to know that you believe those words, I need you to say it a third time. Free Free people people read freely. If we will hold on to those words and fight for them, then we will be able, I think, to stem the tide of censorship. But we cannot be silent. Thank you. We've been to church. And I like the call and response. And this also impacts the digital space as well. Isn't that right, John Bracken? It does. And I think the digital possibilities are both, you know, they're good and bad, as we've seen a lot, right? And I I guess one thing I want to just uplift as building off of, of Tracy's points, you know, we're asking civically, we're asking so much of our libraries, right? And as Chris noted we are so lucky to be in Chicago. We have the best library system in the world. Yeah. We have the best champion first lady in the world championing libraries. We have a philanthropic community. Chicago Public Library Foundation folks are here. Um, we're inc- we have the best leader. We are the best public library leader, CEO in the world. Thank and you. Judas. Thank you to, to everyone who was part of, of recruiting Chris to this town. I mean, we got Tracy, which is not nothing, and ALA. I mean, my goodness, they, they live in our neighborhoods. Um, but we're asking so much of these institutions nationally, right? And most communities do not have the level of capacity and strength and civic involvement in rooms like this um, at the level we don't, you know, this, the framing of this discussion is around uh, defending democracy, right? And the the information crisis is something we're asking libraries to help solve, right? The civic divisions, right? The, our inability to talk to one another is something we're asking libraries to help solve, right? The physical presence, a common physical place where we can come and be together, we're asking libraries to help solve. And that's a lot. And I don't have a solution. I just want us to own the fact that we're putting a lot on the backs of these neighbors and these civic institutions. And we need to think more fully as a nation, 
what we can learn from Chicago about how we invest in those in those communities and in the, in those activities and in those leaders. Great way to kick us off. These bans have happened over time, but it does feel different in this moment, uh, perhaps because in many ways we know that there is a continuum to be anti-racist. And after what happened with George Floyd and, and civil um, changes, we got that. But there's also a continuum to demolish democracy, and it feels like we might be sliding there. And I'm just going to stick on this side and, and ask Tracy, how does this differ from other periods of, of censorship? Uh, because I know there was an ALA freedom to read statement in uh, 1953. How is this time different? Yeah, I mean, well, history is repeating itself. We know that anytime there is an attempt uh, to restrict the right to read, it usually has a political motive and not a popular political motive, right? It usually is an extreme minority that is trying to suppress information. And a lot of times that information is about trying to make sure that we don't widen um, opportunities for enfranchisement. So one of the things that happened for me is that I never thought I've been working in libraries in and outside of libraries for about 25 years. And I never thought I would live long enough to see an entire state defund public libraries. And then the week later, see copy and paste legislation in Texas um, that would seek to uh, to defund a county library in Llano, in Llano County. Never thought I would live to see that. But when Missouri happened, I was so struck. I stayed up literally that entire night and I looked up the slave code laws in 1854 in Missouri. And I saw that Missouri then passed some of the most restrictive um, uh, uh, laws that it could pass against reading. Not only did it punish um, people, in this case, enslaved Africans, if they were caught reading, uh, it also um, punished them with corporal punishment. Some of it would be like the gouging out of eyes and the cutting off of fingers and, and sentenced them to jail time and fines. It also restricted their instruction. So anyone who would be caught instructing uh, enslaved Africans to read would suffer from corporal punishment fines and jail time. It was so restrictive. So we've we seen that um, in, from the 1700s to the late 1800s. We saw it again in the McCarthy era. We've seen it in other countries. I just never thought that I would live long enough to see it in this lifetime. And so soon after George Floyd, so soon after we were all elevating uh, black lives and so soon after we were saying that access to information um, is what we believe in as a country. So I think that we have to understand Understand it as history repeating itself. What pushed the McCarthy era and allowed it to go on for about eight or nine years um, is that people were silent. People saw it as an aberration. Oh, it will pass. That won't happen. And again, what we're seeing today is copy and paste legislation in the digital age. So one thing, you know, for us that we're really trying to elevate next week, we alluded, Alexi alluded to National Library Week, which begins on the 23rd, is the very first day that Monday. On that Monday, we are celebrating the right to read. We are insisting that it is right to read and it is a right to read. So National Library Week, come, yes. 
And National Library Week will also speak to the fact that it's more than just books that are being censored. What is happening is that we're seeing programs uh, being shut down. We're seeing uh, reference um, and instruction. We're seeing all of that being shut down. But I do want to insist that history is repeating itself and we can stop it if we stand up and we resist being silent. Thank you. What a champion. And we have, I want to, I'm coming to you now because you are responsible for what's going on the shelves writ large, uh, taking care of your people as well as that. How concerned are you about this uh, happening across the political spectrum and what's the response uh, from CPL? Well, just, I want to build on something that Tracy mentioned. And I think as a city, we're trying to, we're trying to serve this incredibly diverse Chicago. Mm-hmm. We're trying to be more responsive uh, and build in trauma-informed services, mm-hmm. really evolve as, as a city. And we know knowing each other's stories is a big part of that, mm-hmm. is a big part of our collective healing. So what does that mean when parts of our, of our communities don't get to tell those stories or we can't access those stories? That doesn't really work. But, but to your point, what we've been doing in Chicago is really to make a statement, to declare our 81 libraries as book sanctuaries. We were talking about how many libraries don't have access to language around free, free people read freely. We've, we've been working on our own statements like, you know, some books have heroes, others need them. And we're really trying to occupy that space as well and add to the conversation. In your 150th year, it's quite a challenge mm-hmm. yeah. as well, right? And on the digital side, um, speak from your perspective. Yeah. So, so the Digital Public Library of America was founded of this notion that digital information, di- the digital world, we should have more access to information, not less. And there was a concern that is the, we were seeing constrictions on the flow of information. And I think one of the things that we're excited about w- building on the model that Chris has helped build, building on insp- inspired by activities like the Brooklyn Public Library, um, which have strived to make digital materials available for all, right? And so I, I, I very guardedly can't, it was asked not to announce a project that we're working on to leverage the fact that. It's just that, us. You know, it's just us. I'm looking sometimes. at them. I'm looking at them out of the corner of my eye over there in the corner. They're <laughs> kicking me under the table. But, but I think one of the exciting things, you know, we're far, we're however many years into the digital revolution, 30 odd years. We know that there are some real downsides for our experience, right? I mean, Amy and I were just talking. We have teenage children. We didn't get to the TikTok discussion, but man, how we manage TikTok, right? We're all of us who are parents are trying to figure that out. We also, at DPLA, we believe, we're still optimistic. We believe that, that these digital tools are, are liber, potentially, if we use them the right ways, they're tools for liberation, right? And they're loose for, they're tools for freedom and access to information. And that efforts like the one we're going to announce in June will, <laughs> by using these digital tools and ensuring that everyone has free access, it's going to make the banning difficult, right? It's, it's going to, it's going to make it raise the bar on the ability to, to censor information that really leveraging the tools of digital information and information wants to be free. And, and leveraging the same tools that our children are using all the time. And as Tracy has emphasized in previous conversations, we're always reading on these all the time. Whether it's a book or not, we are reading on these tools. And they're amazing potentials that we have yet to fully capture. Well, I so want to... Can I, can I say one thing? 
you know, I think it's really important that we talk about the inter- the internet and digital access and the internet, uh, you know, as liberatory space. But we have to be abolitionists, right? We can't take that for granted. I just want to say that because I do think we have an opportunity and we're also seeing the materiality of that opportunity. Um, in, you know, we have to think about like chat, like, you know, GPT. We have to think about AI and VR. And right now what we're seeing is that those is, is that those iterations are not liberatory, right? Okay. So we have to be abolitionists. I mean, this conversation is an abolitionist conversation. It is a conversation that says that we are going to challenge the restriction of, um, of, of the goods that will lead us to um, agency and to self-sufficiency. So I'll stop there. But whenever I hear that, there's something that says that we have to act because um, what we're seeing now is also akin to the aftermath uh, um, in, in reconstruction, right? In post um, Annabelle and South, what we saw is some of the most restrictive and vicious attacks against uh, liberty, personal liberty. And it really was because we were seeing a lot of power hoarding and people were really standing down. Well, I, I, all of so it can is I just build appropriate. Off that just real quick? Just, yes, you can. Which is just to say that, yes, and one of the things that we have not been resourced to do as a field is build off the 83 branches we have in every neighborhood and own as libraries these digital, the digital branches, right? We have, because we've been under-resourced, the digital offerings we've been done have done through commercial windows that are owned by for-profit companies that we have to go through, right? And so one of the projects we've been trying to lift off, which ties to the thing that I'm not announcing yet, <laughs> is, is ensuring that libraries can own the digital interface and the conversation with our readers. Come on. Well, we've like we a- got a lot of teases. So there's a lot to unpack. I'm, I'm hearing both the abolitionist perspective, uh, libraries as resilience hubs, libraries as places of liberation. And we're also touching a little bit on what we can say to parents and their access. But I think the unspoken, although it's not unspoken because Tracy's laid it out there, <laughs> race is at the bottom of all of it because libraries are places where you can't hide history and where you face history and yourselves. And it feels like so much of of the censorship is to pretend that certain things didn't happen and to uh, disempower people. And so how do you make th- those big or bigger uh, intersections more clear? And what do you want people to do? Because it, you can slide along for a very long time thinking that someone else will do something and it's happening somewhere else. So uh, starting with you, wh- what should we do? Well, Chris? We've been really fortunate to have a partner in our library foundation who brings in authors like Art Spiegelman. Um, last fall, we were able to have his keynote presentation at the Harold Washington Library, sold out auditorium, and he was really able to connect with high schoolers and college students who showed up asking, what do we do? What do we do in response to these challenges? And so that's my plug for everyone to support our City <laughs> Library Foundation because they really fuel us being able to do that work. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Tracy? Yeah, I would 
you know, say that is really complex, right? Because I think that class is also at the bottom of, of this. You know, we're talking about the fact that during like, when Carnegie and Rosenwald, we have to talk about Rosenwald because Rosenwald has almost been disappeared um, from uh, the literature about library building. Um, and there's probably a lot of reasons that are racialized for that, you know, around that. But we, we have to understand that there was a debate going on as to um, would uh, laborers be more or less productive if they knew how to read? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there was this dependency factor, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to read, you, Elfrida Chapman, an information theorist says, then you live in a small world. Mm-hmm. And so I think I just want to say that I think race is definitely there. Class is there. Gender is there. We can't deny that a lot of the books that are being banned are LGBTQIA. It's about um, really trying to keep people marginalized. I think the question is about power. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons, though, because it is so complex that the American Library Association um, was the first um, organization to create a national campaign against censorship is because we have been there before. In 1951, in the heart of the McCarthy era, the American Library Association, you know, we're just librarians, right? We met in New York and we uh, reiterated that intellectual freedom is at the heart of uh, our practice as librarians and that come hay or high water, we were going to fight for intellectual freedom. And that's how we became um, home to the uh, to the Office for Intellectual Freedom. But I'm going to invite everyone. There's one thing that you can do before you leave this room, and that is you can go to uniteagainstbookbans.org. There you're going to find really a, a playbook um, as the year progresses and the in the next few years progress, because we're going to have to stay in this conversation about what you can do in your community, um, in amongst your friends to fight against book bans and censorship. You heard it. You can do it. Uh, put your phones away right now, though. <laughs> Where is the space for young people? We're all here of a certain age. It takes all of us to move forward. So how do we activate? I grew my replacements uh, with my children. But how do we how do we activate? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. How do we activate those who might not be our children, but in our families? Last night, another library. Uh, all I do is the library. My boss lets hey, me. Hey, that's all right. But uh, there was someone talking about the history of social movements. And Gordon Mantler, an amazing conversation about Harold Washington's eras and both of his campaigns. And I said, wow, maybe there's a young person somewhere who can now think about being a historian of social movements. So I'll ask each of you, and you can share your secret. We won't tell anybody. What do we do to activate young folks and make space for them? Because as they say, if they're the future, why aren't we letting them lead us into it? I, I, I'm not going to speak for young folks because my kid always kicks me under the table if I even... But you're not I, getting I, off the but, hook, though. But no, but I think this historical moment is really key. And I actually think... so. I think we're in a very different moment from the McCarthy moment, right? So 70 years ago, we were not actively having conversations about whether the democracy, this republic is going to hold, right? right. And the fact that we're right. actively having that discussion and there are actual, you know, chatter at least about bills being proposed in states that was to succeed from the union, right? That's mm-hmm. a real thing. Second of all, as Tracy evoked, right? The fact that we are less than three years away from the critical heightened conversations we're having about race and power and racism in this country. The fact that the the book bannings followed on that, right, and that the book bannings are driven by 
a racist and anti-queer snapback, mm-hmm. by and large, mm-hmm. is the reality of where we are right now, right. right? And I think one of the challenges we have as a set of civic actors and these civic institutions in particular is how do we knit all that together, right? Mm-hmm. How do we combine the values and our commitments to justice and challenging the historical headwinds and, and restrictions that we're all fighting against while also making sure we're building bridges, right, and having civic conversations? And Maybe, Sylvia, maybe tying that back, you know, I don't know that we're going to figure that out in time. The next generation might be the one that have to figure that out. But we need to get from here to there. And I feel like this critical moment we're bubbling in right now is is just fraught, right? And we're either we're going to make it or we're not. Mm -hmm. And and these institutions are going to be key to answering that question. It's a hidden battlefield. But Tracy, what would you add to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm here with my thought partners, right? I mean, what we're talking about here, what we text each other and we and we meet and we talk about. I, I definitely want to say that you're right. Uh, what's happening in libraries today, this is a litmus test for the strength of our democracy. Mm. Make no mistake about it. See it for what it is. And I think that what we are going to have to do when it comes to thinking about young people is I want to go right to what was happening on Saturday, right, here in Chicago, this adopted city that I love. Nothing in my career um, in the last 20 years would have been possible without this city. I am a native of Los Angeles. I've lived in New York, but I grew up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. 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 And I want that. I want that for our young people. Um, and. On Saturday, while, you know, there was this melee, we actually had our board meeting. We have like some of the longest board meetings ever. <laughs> the only thing we don't have are the wigs and the robes. I'm trying to tell you. I mean, it is long. And, you know, but the thing I, I the thing I want to say is that we, we really have to, um, be accountable to what's happening in our educational systems, right? That's right. We all, I live in Pullman and in Pullman in my neighborhood during the pandemic, you could really see the digital divide. I mean, you could see the digital d- divide. Governor Prisker even said, that one of the issues that was a barrier to containing um, COVID-19, and I know our mayor did such an amazing job here in Chicago, but one of the barriers was the inequity of digital access. When we decided to go home and to, you know, when we had to, some of us had to work. I was going into the office every day. Um, we're right here now on Michigan Avenue. Um, the American Library Association was on Huron for a while, and my board finally said, hey, it took us a long time to get you, <laughs> so can you just, like, stay home so we kind of know that we're going to have you for a while? But I experienced a lot of buffering in my neighborhood because only about 45% of people in my neighborhood have either access to reliable broadband um, or uh, pay, you know, pay for Wi-Fi. And I want to say Chicago, we voted a couple of years ago um, for uh, open broadband, right? And we need to fight for that. The American Library Association believes that we all deserve a fee-free internet because our three most important quality of life indicators are dependent on it. Access to education, access to employment, and access to public health. It's time out for paying for Wi-Fi. I just have to say that. It is now a utility like water. I don't turn, I don't pay 10 cents every time I have a drink of water in my home. I just have to say that because this conversation is also about the future. So when we talk about the young people, we owe them better. We owe them quality education, quality libraries, and perhaps digital navigators, because I understand that a lot of people in our communities don't have access, and some people don't have maybe the sophistication when it comes to digital skills to really navigate the internet. So I just want us to hold the young people in this. These are the best young people I've ever met. Some of them, I'm just really, I'm always sort of in awe of the young people in Chicago, because they are the definition of resilience. So I want to dedicate this conversation to them and say that when we talk about 
free people read freely, they are who I'm thinking about. Well, that serves my purpose. I'll just go home right now. I love it. That is, I mean, we do, we do owe it to them. I laugh and say that I'm here to help all the things that the boomers did. We had so much fun doing. So sorry, not sorry, but we owe you a, a better world. I, I want to come to uh, your question. So I don't know who's collecting them. I don't see people moving around, but I'm going to say, raise your hand and give your questions if you have them. But what can we do together? What are, are some of the solutions? We've touched on it a, a bit. Communal efforts, you know, schools, libraries, museums. I, I, in Chicago, you can look out. I can see Michelle Boone, things we did, you know, when you were on the board at Steppenwolf and we worked with the History Museum or Emily uh, uh, from uh, the Logan Center and all the partnerships. We open up our institutions to young people like no one else in the world. If we can be there, they can be there. But what are the partnerships? What are some of the, the things we can do together? And Chris, I'll go to you first, and then I'll come to your questions. Well, I'm just thrilled that we're having this conversation at City Club that we're with our civic leaders, because this issue is playing out in libraries, but this isn't a library issue. That's right. right? This is at the heart of our civil liberties. And so I think... That engagement with our partners and our other civic leaders is is our playbook. So we have Commissioner Harkey in the audience. She's been able to support us in our Book Sanctuary campaign by bringing Theaster Gates to the table to build an art installation in the Harold Washington Library mm -hmm. to celebrate our freedom to read. Mm -hmm. Through the foundation, we're working with CPS to develop the 81 Club so that all students in Chicago have a library card, have access to our suite of ebooks. I think it's that kind of deep connection with our city leaders. I love it. And of course, you media give that shout out, yeah. you know, which, which exists and, as and well. Let me build off you media for a second, because you media became a national model for how libraries should engage, not, you know, directly with and co-design with our youth, right? Mm -hmm. And I think another place where Chicago is a leading, and I'm looking right here at Brenda Bowie from the Chicago Public Library Foundation, this this room is a national model for how we invest in libraries. I mean, starting from our Secretary of State and State Librarian, yes. starting with the infrastructure of national organizations and Time Magazine triumph leaders, <laughs> and, and for a space, this field does not exist without philanthropic support, right? If you think back to the Carnegie investments that yes. Were made up to the digitization that the Gates Foundation led, right? And I think there's a moment in time where this field needs broader civic investment, which we have modeled. Bob Wislow's here, right? The, Bob and the foundation have modeled with Brenda's leadership and Chris's leadership should be a national model. And actually, Brenda's going to a conference in June that I know where she's helping to build a national infrastructure he knows to build business. that philanthropic effort. And, and so I would say if you're not a contributor to the Chicago Public Library Foundation, find Brenda and her team today and become a contributor because that's Thank one you. pragmatic way to help build this. Thank you, Chris. He knows your business and he's a good connector. I'm going to come out to your questions. And uh, I think it's good to say this is from Gabe Lyon from uh, Illinois Humanities. How would we bolster, how might we bolster and support our statewide neighbors who are also fighting these battles? And I know you were talking about that a bit, but I'll open it to anyone on the panel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thrilled that we have so many of our stakeholders from throughout Illinois who are doing this intellectual freedom work. We have our Illinois Library Association folks in the house. Thank you so much for coming. 
I, I think it's really using those avenues with our Secretary of State and our State Library Association to convene and continue to share strategies and best practices. I think John was really gracious pointing out all that we're doing in Chicago. I think we need to find ways to convene people in our own state in Chicago with Brenda and the Library Foundation to share our strategies and how we're finding success here. Well, I maybe there needs to be a, a giant conference. That's the kind of thing that Michelle used to think about. AOA uh, conference is going to be here in June. So bam! Already and there might be a convention of some kind of elected stuff going on here. Maybe... <laughs> But uh, I digress. Eric Johnson from Open Books. Much of what is happening, book banning, school curriculum, reproductive health, is happening locally at the state level. What can Illinoisans do to combat threats to free reading outside of Illinois? It's a similar question, Mm -hmm. but I want to get to that state level and even that micro level. I can remember when I was a journalist the push to have people on school boards yes. and how, you know, uh, more conservative folks were just filling up these spaces. So I'll come to you on that. Yeah, I mean, you, you're you exactly right. I mean, we have to think about, first of all, our positionality and radiate from there. So I love um, all of the big ups that Chicago Public Library is getting and rightfully deserved. And, and I think, you know, the state level. But at the American Library Association, what we are doing is that we have a couple of things that are going on right now. We have an policy core where we're teaching librarians from across the country how to advocate for intellectual freedom with their lawmakers in their states. We're also working on a campaign school for people to run for library boards, um, whether they are at the school level or at the public level. Another thing that we've been, the, one of the biggest book bans um, in this country that has been persistent takes place behind bars. What we've been doing for the last two years is fighting for the right to read for people who are incarcerated. What we've seen is that there's been more for-profit prisons, so that motive to kind of like push back recidivism has been eroded. So what we see is um, library services taken away. What we've seen, literacy programs. And and if I'm going to interject here, what I think Chicago really needs right now is we need an office for literacy. We Mm. have too many people in this city who are not able to read past a fifth grade level. That's something Chris and I, that's how we bonded. We talk about that every day. There's only one uh, mayor's office for literacy in uh, the country, and that's in Philadelphia. What we know is that we just need a citywide office for literacy. So I'm going to ask everyone, please join us. That's one of those fights for the American Library Association. We know only 16% of people have access to literacy instruction in the country who need it. Um, Becky Raymond is here from Scale Lit. Um, and so we have the infrastructure. Let's make sure that no one uh, can uh, does without the, the not just right to read, but the ability to read in this city. And and also, let's make sure that people who are incarcerated also have the right to read. That's something that we can do right now. Very good. I appreciate that. Sylvia, can I pick up the, the point you made about the micro level, right? And that harkens back to about you know, several months ago, our, among the corporate partners in library land is FCB, who's here. They came to us at the DPLA and said, with a vision of, let's take advantage of these tools that know where we are, and let's take advantage of our ability to offer digital titles and digital books and ebooks, and let's have it when you are in a place where a book has been banned, let's make sure you know about it, and then you are able to access that book on your digital device, right? And so at the, we can leverage these technologies for micro level, neighborhood level, immediate spots with this book has been banned here, here you 
student can now access it and read it. And I think that is part of, and we've been trying to couch that in the right way, going back to some of the points that Alexi and Tracy touched on. People are scared, right? People yeah. are cowed. I've emailed various folks that we work with in some of the states across the country that we've talked about, and they've picked up the phone and called me back. I can't talk about this on email because we're expecting that the state legislature, we're going to be foiled. Well, and that tells you, that tells you that democracy is fragile. This is a, a question that piggybacks on that. Uh, this was from someone virtually, uh, Victor Salvo who said, can the sale of a banned book from one state where it is not banned, like Illinois, home of the people, uh, to a state that has been banned, where it has been banned, like Florida, be criminalized? Man, if that judge in Texas gets a hold of it, maybe, Woo! right? You don't yeah. know. Yeah. And, 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 and what we've seen is that Florida legislation says yes, right? Because it's it's been about the fact that uh, if you even bring a book that has been banned on your person, if you carry it into an institution, a school or a, a public library where it's been banned, you also, you know, are, um, have cause for sanction there. So, you know, the, the laws are becoming more and more restrictive. Well, and we are all learning, uh, writing this down sometimes. I'm just telling you, I know you are. I'm going to go through these last three questions pretty quickly. Uh, and one has multiple parts. Um, fellow li- from the Library Association, so I'm going to get to it. Handwriting not as good as Aaron Johnson's, but thank you, Eugene. Um, can any, and I have the worst, can any parallels be drawn between the move to suppress library materials and uh, people using the heckler's veto to suppress speakers on college campuses? And this mm-hmm. question is key because it gets to those bigger connections. Anyone can speak to that intersection? Mm. I'd have to study that. Well, we'll study Might it. Stump me. <laughs> All right. But it, Our it's, librarians will be at work on it. Li- and librarians, you raise the question, so you must know the answer. So we'll come back with you. And then um, this question is, is kind of interesting. It may go to the industry. I think Julie Fain from Haymarket is here as well. But mm. have we in the professional, in the profession, ceded too much power to publishers and authors um, in classifying materials, especially as it relates to youth and young adult materials. Hmm. Uh, and so does do libraries need to be trained in terms of collection development, acquisition, and the like? That's a library question. Yeah, no, I mean, and I was a collection development librarian. I was, <laughs> no, I, you know, one thing that I would say is that, and you know, you, John, I, I don't know if people caught it, John said it. When you, the first day you sit down in library school, you learn one thing information wants to be free. Mm. So I resist um, the labeling of, of, of books. And right now you see people trying to stick like a PG-13 rated R type of um, category. I think we have to resist that because people develop, you know, let's, let's understand this. Reading is um, really about also the building of, um, of also civic literacy and civic fluency, our ability to learn how to be with each other. One of my favorite books was Heidi, right? And I always say, I read that about 12 times. I've never been to the Swiss Alps and I still don't own a goat. (laughs) 
But yet it had a real influence on me because I was really, really close to my grandfather. And my grandfather, like a lot of men of his generation, was very stoic and didn't speak much. And so I had to learn that he loved me, even though he didn't always show it outwardly. And I learned that from a book called Heidi. So I think that what we want is to make sure that librarians who are trained in collection development and in the laws of librarianship have the uh, have the professional uh, right to to say, okay, this is a good book. Um, It has been reviewed. And then that's it. And then it is put in certain types of areas of collections. And sometimes multiple books are put into multiple areas. But I want to say, first of all, we owe a a debt to authors because we have people who are writing, even though I'm talk about courageous, they're writing their story and I just give it up to them. But I think to publishers, let's be as as least restrictive as we can. Otherwise, we're going to fall into a trap that we won't be able to pull ourselves out of. Well, uh, I'm going to combine Jackie Davidoff and uh, Renee Green's questions together because they, they, they align. Jackie's concerned about the intense hatred uh, that we are currently seeing in our in our country, and if there's a pathway to diffuse it, you've talked about even uh, shootings in the community. And uh, Vernay is talking about the groups who are supporting book bans being organized uh, and well sourced. And and again, how can we um, finance an effort? to do differently. So if you'll wrap your closing remarks in those answered, I, I would appreciate it. I, I think I said earlier that we really need to come together around this. And as we're getting attacks on, on our freedoms, making sure that we're not silent, making sure that we are also um, sharing our message. Um, so I, I know we all have like our different uh, campaigns around adding to this dialogue, but I think our effort in Chicago, developing our book sanctuary campaign, giving people some language and some positioning and um, verbiage about how they can also be an advocate. I, I think that's a big part of it is everyone adding to this dialogue. So it doesn't feel like we're getting drowned out. Um, so that's my encouragement to go to booksanctuary.org and please sign up and support us. Very good. Thank you so much. Because you're the time person, you go last. Uh, and yes. I, I will Thank come you. to you, John. Thank you. To break some more news for us, John. Well, I'm going to try to be optimistic and thread a, a couple of the questions there. I think the question about censorship on a university campus, I think speaks to the fact that this is not a left-right issue, right? Tracy didn't say the ALA mission is to make sure some information is free and accessible, Mm. right? It is about access to all information. And that's something that we can all get behind. Similarly, I think this question about the publishers reminds me that we have not updated how we think about copyright for the digital age, right? Tracy's colleagues are at the forefront at leading those discussions, right? And and libraries are leaders in how do we ensure that the rules and regulations and laws we have, the the Communications Decency Act was written in 1996. We're having these debates today about Section 230 and what it means for safe harbors, for internet companies. These are real discussions that we need to have at, at, at a national and a local level. And one of the nice things is those conversations are bipartisan, right? Those debates are happening, these discussions that are happening across the country about TikTok and access to TikTok, that is not a left or a right discussion. So I do think that as we frame these discussions and think about it, there's a way to make sure that we're building a future for all of us and that we're all at that table. Thank you. Yeah. Tracy? Yeah. 
I think my remedy is very simple. Let's, to channel Dr. King, let's fight hate with love. Mm. Let's, um, when people are banning books, let's read banned books together, right? Um, in my neighborhood in Pullman, uh, uh, we were, we have a community thread on Facebook and someone was talking about, are you reading about these banned books? And I was like, yeah, I'm reading about them. And other people were like, yeah, me too. <laughs> and I was like, what do you all want to do? Well, maybe we can read some of the banned books. And I was like, oh, here's a list. And we decided <laughs> to get together and um, we just started reading one book a month uh, and um, in each other's living rooms. And we went into houses that we had never been in. I mean, just like different ages, intergenerational interracial, interfaith. And, uh, and it was only, uh, just recently that someone said, do you, are you? (laughs) And, but I think the other thing that we have to do, the last thing is use your libraries, use your school library, use your public library, use your academic library, call on your state library. Let's make sure that libraries don't disappear. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been such a phenomenal conversation. We're kind of hitting our post uh, on time, even though we started a little bit later. I know that I wouldn't be who I am if it weren't for libraries when I grew up, inspiring me to leave a little hometown in Pennsylvania, even though Ewing's are all Chicago. I wasn't born here, but my library on Lake Erie Mm. made me want to see, it expanded my horizons. So let's continue to expand horizons and know that democracy is fragile. All of this stuff is real. Let's support the people who are standing on the front lines of, of keeping information open. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. So much. Thank you to all the panelists. You're all brilliant. Um, and we would love to have you back. So we are going to present every one of you with a year-long membership. Chris, yours is re-upped, I think, starting now for the next year. Um, I have a one point of privilege question. I'm going on vacation next week. You're all brilliant people. What are you all reading right now? I'm reading a biography of Margaret Thatcher because I kind of want to understand what a post-empire world, you know, looks like. (sighs) Evicted by Matthew Desmond because I'm really interested in housing precarity. Mm-hmm. I'm reading a bunch of books that might go towards our one book one Chicago. So mm. that's a teaser for all of you for later in the year. I'm reading anything we'll about how the climate crisis is coming for all of us. Mm. So whatever our issues are, extreme weather is right around the corner. We have to stand up and read books about it and make that change as well. So I'll, I'll leave the beach novels at home. <laughs> uh, you all are raising the bar here for us. So thank you again uh, to our panelists. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Chris, for, for uh, Commissioner Brown for bringing this together, the foundation and Bob uh, Wislow. This was such, we love your ideas. This, you brought this to us. This was amazing. And there's so many ideas here that now there's more to come, right? There's more, you know, follow-up and action items. So, so we'll have you all back. Um, given the programming, uh, ideas that, that came to fruition here, I'm going to take one minute and mention like five more that I think you'll all enjoy. So please join us again. We've got Tomorrow we have Ireland's ambassador to the U.S. and we just, I think, added a table to that. So, um, 
Uh, we're going to have some fun cul- Chicago culinary and cultural surprises there tomorrow, and it's going to be a fun, a fun lunch. State's Attorney Kim Fox will be here next week on the 25th. Um, att- uh, let's see. Uh, Andrea Sands. John's not going to miss this one. Uh, this is, she, she's speaking uh, from the Chicago Community Trust on May 1st. Uh, Secretary of State Alexi Janulius, who was so great to have us have have in, uh, to join us today, um, and, and also learned that he's our state librarian today. That was news to me. Uh, he's coming on May 9th. Um, wow, Commissioner. Um, oh, Aaron Harkey is also here today. She is coming on May 12th. So we, we really have quite a lineup. And in, in true, in, in, you know, true John Bracken fashion, uh, there are a few that we have yet to announce, but they're coming and they're, they're going to be very exciting. So don't ask, uh, you know, after the program, but please all join us, um, this week, next week, weeks following. There's so much to discuss. You all are helping raise and elevate the conversation here in Chicago. And uh, it's just an honor to have you all join us. So thank you. Enjoy this beautiful Chicago day. Thank you again to our brilliant panelists. And City Club is adjourned. <laughs>